Greetings, cabin crew. I have an amazing live show for you tonight. First of all, I am joined by my co-host, Courtney, from Hans Podcast. Thank you for being here, Courtney, on this adventure with me. We are going to be welcoming Anna Maria Manello. And let me say, this is one for the books on my podcast crew. It's a we're not worthy moment, I should say. Anna, or I'm sorry, Anna is an accomplished and renowned screenwriter and author. She has a genuine passion for exploring the paranormal and the extraterrestrial with her own personal experiences serving as an inspiration for her work. Through her books, she has chronicled unexplained phenomena and terrifying encounters with the unknown, bringing these stories to life and captivating readers around the world. I know Anna is going to be a fascinating and engaging guest. I am so honored that she's going to share her insights and experiences with the paranormal and beyond. So, let's have a warm welcome for Anna Maria Manalo. Hello, Miss Anna. I am trying trying to uh, reconnect myself here. Sorry for everybody uh, who's been waiting. Um, I had some technical difficulties. I was trying to get on Skype and realized I didn't have it downloaded. And then I was trying to get on Podbean and I was a listener rather than a participant. So that would not have been too much fun. Exactly. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you. We just don't want you to listen. But first of all, Anna, let me just say it's a true honor to have you on my show. And secondly, I listened to your Sinister Archives podcast, and I love the way that you say your name because I, when I listened to it, I wanted to know the correct way to say your name. And you have that rough accent. You were like, this is Anna Maria Manalo. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I got to get this right. <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> it's like a rough edgy it has that don't call me anna vibe you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. actually you can call me anything but mud <laughs> <laughs> well anna it is wonderful to have you here listeners i'm so glad that you can join us here for this amazing amazing discussion that we're going to have with Anna today from her early life up to the new book that dropped on Amazon, The Night Visitants. So Anna, I would like to do a beginning to future discussion with you, as I mentioned, and I have many questions, but I'd like to start with asking you about your early life in a nutshell. Just, you know, I want to have the listeners get a feel of who you are, where you came from, a little backstory on you. Okay, uh, I'll try to make it as brief as possible. Uh, I do tend to go on and on and on, so you probably have to stop me. Um, <laughs> I was born and raised in a very small town called San Juan, which is about maybe 55 miles north of Manila uh, in the Philippines. 
for those of you who are not familiar with the Philippines, it is actually that little tiny country that sits right above Indonesia and beneath China. Um, I was first living with my parents in a hamlet uh, called Little Baguio, kind of like a mouthful there, uh, also tough to spell. Uh, we were renting a townhouse, and at the time I was just an infant when I had my very first experience uh, with the supernatural. Uh, it, the central focus of the haunting in that particular townhouse was my father. My father was a writer like myself. He was probably one of the first freelance writers that ever was back in the 60s, which will give you an idea how old I am. Uh, he, oh, stop. <laughs> he worked from home. And, uh, you know, that was something that not too many people did. Uh, my mother was a journalist, but at the time she was a homemaker because I was just a small infant. So she stayed home with me. Uh, my father used to work in a study that was sandwiched between the master bedroom and the nursery where I slept. Uh, and at nightfall, he would continue working. Uh, people ate very late dinners in the Philippines, you know, around 7 or 8 p.m. And 8 p.m. is usually around dusk when night starts to settle. The creature uh, that would show at my father's study issued from a huge tree that was about a few feet outside a very large bay window. Whatever it was and wherever it originated from, my father told my mother and his own parents, because he was only about 20 years old at the time, that whatever it was was unfolding from this ancient tree that overlooked a creek. So around dusk, whatever this was, would promptly come out of the tree and attach itself to the window, which is usually open to the breeze, except for a screen. And it would hover there, and I mean hover, and look down at my father. So Farrah and Courtney, tell me what you think it looks like. I would say, well, I think you and I had discussed that briefly, of course, but wasn't it something more around like a Mothman kind of? That was the vibe it, when you were describing it. That's kind of how I was picturing it, except very large. I don't know if that's the same kind of description you would give it, but. Yeah, you're both correct. And the only reason I knew is because when the Mothman prophecies came out in the theaters, um, I promptly ran out of the theater. I was told I didn't see it, but I think I must have because the first visceral reaction I had when they finally showed whatever it was that was, uh, I guess, responsible for the problem with the silver bridge in the movie, 
I couldn't handle it. I stood up, I exited the theater, and I had to go outside. I felt like I couldn't breathe. I will also so say, too, and I, could, I don't remember the exact, like, um, where I heard this, and I'm, I might be butchering the details, but I want to say that there are a plethora of Mothman sightings that are in the Philippines and just around Asia. So I wouldn't be surprised if that is what you and your father were encountering. That's terrifying. Well, I, I think it was. The only thing that was markedly different, I would have to say, is that I, I'm not really sure of the nature of the Mothman. I'm no expert with what that is. But my mother, one night, um, we had a live-in maid at the time. She started screaming when she came into my father's study. She was just checking in on him because it was right before dinner. and She was letting him know dinner was ready. And apparently she caught the creature by the window and started screaming. She ran down the stairs. My mother ran up and opened the door in time to see the creature herself. And her first response was to grab a cross from the opposite wall and charge towards it, which I thought was very, very courageous of her. And the response of the creature was to take one bat wing, because that's what it was. It had huge bat wings by six feet by six feet. And it covered itself like you would see with a vampire. And then it started to kind of descend off the second floor window like it would effervesce. So I, I don't know how the Mothman responds to a symbol of a religious symbol. But in this case, this thing definitely was either frightened by it so much so that it disappeared. And if not, um, not to interrupt, but I just wanted to say when I was doing some research about some cryptids in your um, area in the Philippines over there, Anna, there was one, I think it was called like um, the, oh goodness, the Allen or Allen. It's like A-L-A-N. It is actually like a half, it's a half human, half avian creature. And then there's another one that's called the Capre, K-A-P-R-E. And it's said to be a giant, like, uh, I think, uh, cigar-smoking tree dweller, which you had said that this one was kind of attached to a tree. So those are just two that I kind of came across in my research. That sounds familiar. Both of them sound familiar. The copra, from what I understand, is kind of like an elemental. It's supposed to be a steward of the forest or a guardian of the forest. Um, it's been legend that it shows up when people start falling trees and, you know, doing lumbering and things of that nature. This one was different in the sense that it definitely was winged uh, and it... It was something that would manifest at dusk, which I know the other two do as well. The sad part about this is that after several months, my father started writing about it, and his writing was tinged with a lot of very dark images, which is really not his currency. 
And in the end, he was afraid that if he went to sleep, it would take his soul. Oh my goodness. That is terrifying. Yeah, Honestly, is like this, this, when, you know, when you said that his writing became dark, now with all the paranormal type of research that I've done with like the demonic entities and attachments and everything, it definitely seemed like something attached to him because that's, you know how like the demonic infestation goes in stages with the person you have like the oppression the obsession all of that he was in the stage of if it was affecting his writing it was definitely affecting his thoughts that's terrifying that what how did you see him when he was going through this anna well i was too small the only recollection i had was that he would try and spend time with me when he would take a break and leave the room, he would come downstairs where I was playing. But the, the thoughts are very vague at this point, I think because I was so young. I didn't even know that he had passed away until I saw his image sitting across from me in my nursery at my grandmother's house. At that point, we had moved. They were making arrangements for the funeral. And I saw him waving goodbye at me, and I didn't put two and two that he had already passed. And what, I mean, I, I, I don't want to ask it, but I, I kind of have to with the whole story of, of how bad the attachment was. Do you think that this attachment was played a part in his death? We'll say that. I think it directly did. Um, when he committed suicide uh, later on, people were talking about how it, it was the only way he could escape this infestation, this creature uh, that seemed to just be, it, you know, it was, it was just there every night. Um, and he got to the point where he was really, his health was deteriorating because he couldn't sleep. Uh, it was constantly trying to converse with him, from what I understand. Uh, and then later on, my grandparents told me the entire story, um, how my mother and I fled, went to live with my grandmother, which was only about three miles away, and it followed us. So I was just about to ask that, if, if, it, if it followed you, now, when you were getting, the, how long did you stay at your grandparents' house? We were there for a while until I was about 13 years old. And my oh. grandparents' house is a totally different bag. They had built that right before, right after World War II, not realizing that it was a site of a massacre. So there were bodies strewn that were not, not ever buried properly in the backyard of the house. They found pieces of Japanese uniforms, medals, things of that nature that told you basically they they lay there at some point, you know, having been killed. And somehow the ground buried them up or someone buried them up. Uh, no one ever gave them a proper burial. So the house itself was also infested. So layering on top of that was this creature that had followed us. Um, my mother took me to a church, had me blessed several times. She was very afraid that somehow it would pursue me 
And I was just a kid. I didn't really understand what was going on. I only knew there were certain places in the house that I should not frequent alone. And had, did you yourself have any encounter face-to-face -face with this entity, Anna? I don't recall that. But I think that unconsciously I must have at some point seen it. Because when I was dashing out of the movie house, it was a very primitive reaction that I had. That somehow unconsciously I knew that was something that was somehow in my past. Let's put it that way. It may also be not to, you know, diagnose anything, but it may be just a repressed memory that you no longer, that was so traumatizing that you don't really access anymore. And maybe it's something that you mentioned to your mom in passing, which is why she had you blessed and, and kind of protected. Um, because she may have thought that it's, you know, you're young, you're vulnerable. Um, so maybe that's kind of the idea behind that that's honestly what i would take from it but you would know better than we would obviously but i think you're right on with that i think that basically there was a lot of fear surrounding you know being that it was attached to him and he was gone uh and the creature following us having been seen by my mother uh there was a lot of concern that it was after the rest of the family no one really knows why we were tagged, why us in particular. Uh, but these kinds of things are very difficult to shake. Um, I will have to say though, that after a number of years, that kind of sighting started to fade. Uh, and we don't, we don't really know what kind of pushed it away, whether it was because there were a lot of people who were praying around us, and, and that could be a very strong reason. Uh, we still don't know to this day. So may I ask what your, because I'm not, of course, very familiar, Anna, with the Philippines, but may I ask what kind of religion is the more majority over there? The majority, I would say 99% are Roman Catholic. Uh, and it still is to this day. Uh, so any kind of infestation like that is always followed with some kind of an intervention like a blessing. And that's what I was going to ask. I know you said that you got blessed, but did your grandparents or your mother ever tell you about your father? Did they ever try to bless him? I got was that when he passed away there's this and I don't know if it's something that was just according to the local priest or whether it's a general rule that when someone commits suicide they're not allowed to have a wake inside a church and they would not from what I understand even allow him to be buried in a Christian cemetery and after some pushing and pulling from his own parents who were prominent people, they finally allowed him to be buried in the Christian cemetery. Um, I saw the grave. I do know that there's a lot of apprehension about how much I know. And when I went to school, moving forward in time, I would tell my friends, like, your father's not here. How come, you know, my dad came and picked me up. You, we never see him. And I would say, oh, he died from smoking too much. I would, <laughs> you know, make up something. I mean, I, 
But deep down inside, for some reason, I knew that it, there was a tragedy that had happened, that whatever happened was very dark. Um, and I got the validation of my own feelings. Years later, I, when I moved to the States, I decided to visit, and this is about five years after we moved to the, to the US, we moved to Connecticut. My mother and I flew back and visited um, with my grandfather, my father's father, who still lived in the same house. And my father's favorite youngest son was there and his wife was about to have a baby. So, and I'll tell you this story because this kind of like brings you to the present about how these things are hard to shake. We were in a dining area with a very long table because my father had about 10 siblings. Um, we were sitting on the one end of the table. It was coming towards dusk. Uh, dinner was being prepared because we were invited to have dinner. So as we were waiting, my father's brother's wife, her name was Yola, brought out of an album of pictures of all the kids, my father's siblings and things to just kind of reminisce and share some stuff about the family. In the process of sharing the pictures, a piece of paper fell to the floor. Yola picked it up. She opened it. And then she said, oh, she said, I didn't know we had this. This should be yours, she said to me. She unfolded it and placed right in front of me. And it was my father's death certificate. And right on there, it said that he had exsanguated. He bled to death. And it said ruled suicide. I guessed because after all those years of telling my friends in school this story about how he smoked so much, what I had known deep inside finally came out. And my mother said, oh, don't give that to her. We never told her. And I looked at her and I said, but I've known. And suddenly the entire network of windows on the one side of this room all opened at the same time and thousands of roaches. Oh my gosh. Roaches flew into the room, darkened it so much that you couldn't see the overhead lighting. And there was already food that was being put down in the middle of the table for dinner. They covered everything. They covered the table. They covered the ceiling. They were flying towards the banister. Two servants came in with brooms and they were sweeping them, trying to sweep them away. And you could smell, you know how roaches smell. Mm -hmm. And I proceeded to run up the steps to get away from it because it was getting in my hair. It was getting in Yola's hair. And my mother yelled, stop in the name of God or Christ, something like that. And then suddenly they were all just gone. Oh my goodness. That is, that is unbelievable. That's something that you see in a movie. It and really, it, it, it sounds like, um, not Poltergeist, the Amityville Horror. Yeah. Yep. 
but roaches instead of flies. A demonic type infestation, usually what they say, of course, is, well, actually it could be locust, roaches, flies, but Anna, that is insane that that actually happened. I, I'm, I'm like having a hard time processing that because we all see that in movies. Yes. Well, this was something where you couldn't believe it was happening. And then when it ended, as quickly as it began, the smell of them was instantly gone. And you would think if you had an actual roach infestation, you would have bodies because they were swatting at them. You would have some in the soup, so to speak, because that was just brought out. There weren't any at all. Every one of them were just gone. The windows remained open, but there was nothing there. They just simply vanished. All she had to do was say that one word, and they just simply vanished. That's, that is I don't even know how to react to that. <laughs> I know, because we've only seen that in movies. That's what I can't get is that this actually happened to someone. It's just, so what did your family do after that, Anna? Well, I, we couldn't believe it. My grandfather, he was getting on in years. He had to sit down and he just, he kept shaking his head. And my mother was looking out at the window and thinking, is there something out there that would cause, and my grandfather got defensive and he said, this is a very clean house. I keep a very clean house. Uh, this is not going to happen here. Nothing like this has ever happened here. And I, I lost my appetite, to tell you the truth. I Something viscerally came over me as if it was telling me that they had won over him. And I know that to this day not to be true. But it was almost like it was mocking us that they succeeded in getting rid of him and the woman that <laughs> the wife who was you know having a baby we were concerned how she was and she was sitting down and she said my gosh she said i don't want to stay here so we ended up getting in the car and we just left the food the way it was you know, I don't know what they did with it, but we, we got in the car and, and we left to go somewhere else to eat. Right. We just got out of the house. I mean, yeah, especially if, if it wasn't kind of going back to what your grandfather said about how it's, you know, we keep a clean house and everything. It wouldn't be like hordes and millions of cockroaches just coming into the house. It would be like one or two here or there in the event that it was like, gross but even then it's it's like you said it's a pristine place so it's obviously something more than that so i just again i don't know how to react to this that's harrowing i agree i agree now anna when when this happened i was going to ask you like what was your first like paranormal experience was would you say that would be it right there or did you have something even more in your face, I guess I should say. Well, 
that was when I was probably 18 years old when we went to visit. Way before that, when I was living in my grandmother's house and I was just a child, um, I was looking out the nursery room window. And, you know, because dinner is late, you're done with school. I think I was in kindergarten at the time. I was sitting at the window and I was looking out at what I thought was a tree and then realized that's not where the tree would be. That's where the car park, the driveway would begin. But there was something there that was a shadow and it wasn't moving and then suddenly it moved and it was smoking a cigarette. It was a shadow being. That one was very, very, it was just me. And it was, I got the feeling it was watching me, that it was menacing, uh, and its intentions were not positive. Isn't, so, that, isn't that crazy that you can actually feel, even if it's your first ever paranormal experience, that you can actually feel when it is a positive entity or a negative? You get that feeling. Yes, yes. And it's very, very palpable. There's also a sense of time stopping. And I know I've heard this from people, even with like a UFO sighting, that time seems to pause. It's as if you're being held in some kind of time warp, I guess is the word I, that comes to mind. And, and you're held in the grip of this, confronting you. And I broke away. I ran out of the room. I went, told my grandmother. And to her, it wasn't even strange because of all the things that had happened in the house, all the things that had been seen by people in the house. There's a story almost to every room in that house. But that was the first one I recall. And after the roaches, um happened was your mother still the same as not talking about things after they would happen like of course you not being told about your father even though you knew but was she one to just it made it more real if she talked about it or or just did she never speak about the roach situation again tried to process it over dinner that dinner we went away to a different restaurant you know we went out to eat and she wouldn't talk about it then but I remember when we were on the plane since it was a long flight she finally opened up and she told me for the longest time she didn't know how I would handle it and I said well I've known all along and I don't know who told me to this day, I don't know how I know what I know. And she told me she was convinced that whatever it was that infested it was not, you know, a copray or anything. She said it was demonic. And she was very, very concerned what it would do to me. And that's why she had me blessed when I was a child. Um, it's one of those things where you just can't seem to shake the feeling. And years later, my mother is still afraid to be alone. 
she actually has an altar in her house, um, you know, where she prays. She's very religious because of it. Uh, and she's very mindful of what she reads and what she watches in the movies. So for that reason, she's never read any of my books. <laughs> really? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, I guess that I guess that just shows how much horrifying fear right. that this actually was. We can all watch something. You know, we can watch a show and, and watch a paranormal group investigate, you know, and we can get chills and say, oh, that's scary. But to live it, that's a different kind of fear. Yes, I have to agree. And one of the things that I think that it got me involved in writing in this genre is because I wanted to understand what this unknown was about. And they've always said, know your enemy and be close to them in the sense, not to bond with them, but to know what their motives are, to always be wary of them and know how to protect yourself from them. So this voyage of writing that I've done is basically essentially that, that all the things that I am afraid of, I studied, I researched and you know, happened on people. And it's very interesting how I get my stories. It just seems to come my way. I don't even have to, per se, actively pursue it. I do it with a little effort. The people that are meant to come my way, as they say, if you're supposed to meet certain people, you meet them. And, and that's what happened this to this uh, series of books. I met people and along the way, they started sharing with me their own uncanny and terrifying experiences. And you know, that's the one thing that I, that I love about you, Anna, is the fact that you write these books not only for yourself to understand, but you are becoming a gateway for other people just not to be put in that corner and, oh, you're crazy. Do you know how many people have an experience at least one and they feel who's gonna think i'm crazy so it's almost like you doing this yes it's for your own understanding but it is also helping other people to find a way to tell somebody who won't judge who will listen and who will understand just the same thank you I, I try to do what I can, and I try to make it as entertaining as possible. Um, one of the things that I found in the challenge of writing these things is that I try to go in the head of the person who's experiencing it, and I try to convey on paper exactly what they're feeling and why they're doing what they're doing in response to what they're experiencing. So I, I hope I'm succeeding in doing that to, to let people know, to let the reader know, this is not a game. When you choose to delve into these types of things, once you open a door, it is very difficult to close it. Good point right there. Good point. So before we get into the books that you have written right there was going into a question that I was going to ask. 
So from your experience when you were 13 or so with the roaches, was there any other experiences that led up to then writing your first book? And then we'll get into the books, but what any other experiences that you had? Because I just want to know how much more in depth it, it came, like did this entity stay around or did it mess with your mind or did you have any other experiences before you got to writing your first book? Well, I delved into several different things. I looked at things like reincarnation. As I was growing up as a teenager, I became more and more curious uh, about different aspects of uh, life after death. Um, I, I looked at multiple personality disorders, ended up majoring in psychology um, with a minor in bio. Uh, but I also delved into trying to understand different religions. And I found a universality between the seven religions in the way they confronted evil or, you know, the, the dark aspect. And one of the things that I found startling is that there are rites uh, of exorcism that exists in every religion in the world. And they are as equally potent as the other. Um, if anything, you know, there are some that are, you know, bent on understanding. There's something called the skinwalker, as the American Indian would call something of this nature. Karen, I and know so much about that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, we did the, uh, mis just real quick, Mysteries of the Uinta Basin as a live thing. Courtney, I, Vicky from Mrs. Spooky Obsessed, and Amanda from One Nothing. But I'm so fascinated with Skinwalkers, Anna, that I wanted to take it a little step further. And we explored the four ranches, Skinwalker, Stardust, Blind Frog, and then the fourth person did, you know, on Skinwalkers. But there's such, such a fascinating lore for me. I, I love the tale of a Skinwalker. And, you know, they're tricksters because they take on the cloak of whatever you think they are. Uh, they disguise themselves because they are tricksters. They are deceivers. They're very insidious. Uh, and the other part of that is what they call the jinn in the um, Middle Eastern religions, the Islam the jinn, which is D-J-I-N-N, is considered a genie. You know, we think of genie in the bottle. It's not quite like that. Uh, these things are very evil creatures. Um, I believe they dwell in the same realm, uh, in the fourth dimension, very close to where we are, which is why we're privy to being watched and attacked by them. But that's just my personal opinion. I, I really don't know what realm they're in. I, I just think they're close by. I think that they're, I think that they can be a flesh and blood being, but they have supernatural powers to be able to go in and out of portals, to mm -hmm. be able to go from one place to another. I think they're, uh, you know, but I do agree with you. They are tricksters. I mean, I, I really haven't heard of, of any stories where a skinwalker is hurt someone they are very you know scary i mean of course but 
But let me ask you a question this. When you when you went to school, so how do you think that psychology played a part in understanding what you went through and your family went through? Well, I think that served me more in later years because as a trained therapist, um, I could tell if someone was telling me something, hopefully, most of the time, whether it's an actual experience or if it's something that is maybe driven by their own internal need. Um, I had a very recent, well, actually, it's in the latest book. The Night's Visitants is based on a case of a woman that Tom and I, who in this first, fifth book, I have a co-author, his name is Thomas Conwell. Uh, we debated on how to present the case of this woman. Uh, he felt that her stories were true. I have never met her. I needed to interview her extensively in order to get the material for the book. And, you know, uh, Farrah and Courtney, it's very tough to discern um, without someone's expressions and demeanor, whether they're telling a truth or a lie. We're right. talking miles and miles away. So the only recourse I had was to keep asking the same question in a different style every time I spoke with her and to call her several times to get the complete story. And her story stood up to what I considered the test of questioning, of interviewing. So in that manner, going back to your question, I think the psychology part trained me to be a good interviewer, to be able to detect, okay, you just changed your story. <laughs> That's a good way, though, Anna. You gave me some information that I, I can use, you know, whenever I do my podcast and I ask people to tell me about their scary experience. I never thought about, like how you just mentioned, asking the same question a few times, but in a different way to see if you catch them up on, off guard and see how they answer each of those questions. And, and it's not like you're trying to demean them or maybe show that they're, you know, they're fake. It's more when you're trying to, I guess what you're trying to do is ascertain, okay, are you just doing this for attention or are you actually telling us an encounter that you had? But by fleshing it out and getting the full import of the story from every angle, you they they meet as they say the acid test and in the process you get a better feeling from the person their personality so that you now can write it on paper as if they're saying it themselves uh, and, and that's what i try to do i try to get inside the person's head and say it the way they would articulate it as if they were the one writing the story in the book. 
Right, right. That sound, that's a very, very good way because Anna too, that makes it, that makes people that buy your books know that you did your due diligence to find the best of the story, to make sure that it was the truth. Not you just didn't put out a book to put out a book. You made sure that it was a credible book, a credible writing. And that's what I want to ask you getting into your first book. So that would be portals, correct? Yes. Okay. So portals is not only about Anna's encounters, um, but she actually traveled to other countries to write about other people's encounters, such as I picked one out on a, for you to maybe do a little quick summary of what this was about, but the couple that lived in the south of France who had encountered a quote deer like creature that it was actually standing on two legs. It didn't have four. Um, but Anna, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that story and what made you write portals? came out of an inspiration to put together all the cases and all the people I had spoken to. I was with MUFON as a field investigator for about a year and a half. Uh, during that time, I was on what they call the star team. And you would go on dispatch for about four hours at a time at a certain time of the day or night in my case after work. Um, and you would get live witness reports going into their website. Your job was to contact the witness within the first two hours that the report came into view so that it's very fresh in their mind. A lot of them did not really see the light of day. It basically ended up a report on the website that was verified by one of the investigators. One of them would be me but no one went on the ground to actually investigate what happened. Uh, a lot of these are people who were alleging that somehow they had missed time, that they had some kind of an abduction. For one reason or another that I'd rather not comment on, it seems like some of the cases that were given the green light for a crew to go over had to do with some kind of um, a craft or some technology that they were curious about. So I felt bad for the people who never really got their case resolved after reporting it. Uh, some of them were very frightening, traumatic to the witness, to the experiencer. So I compiled a book that had the most prominent accounts from people. I also traveled as a photographer and got to the privilege of seeing some interesting and remote places and met people who were there who were either vacationers or locals. The one that case in France happened to be two tourists that were on a tour with my husband and I. I was just on vacation when this happened. We were eating dinner and then after that everybody started exchanging Oh, so what do you do? You know, so in the course of the evening, I explained what I, what I did. I was with MUFON and one couple chimed up and they said, oh, a couple of years ago, we went and rented <laughs> a farmhouse in central France. I won't name the name of the town. Um, 
but it was more remote than we thought. We got there later in the evening and we decided we would just go ahead and unpack and maybe get something to eat. And they had a rental car, so they drove out. They came back and there was only one light on that they saw in the front of the house as they proceeded up the driveway. Uh, and then when they got there, they went in, you know, they're getting ready to go to bed. They go up to the second floor and right beneath the floor where they had the master bedroom was the kitchen. And when you look out the master bedroom window, you get a view of the driveway and then to the left, there is a barn, a detached barn. Um, a lot of some of the houses in France, you know, most of them are renovated, not new. Uh, are within a certain amount of land, and they're usually farms that are in central France. In this one, the barn had a bright blue light coming through, I guess, the loft of the barn. So the wife proceeded to tell her husband, according to the story, hey, look, you know, I think the uh, landlord must be here. He's tinkering with something in the barn. And husband looks out the window and he says, it's a blue light. Yeah, maybe he's fixing something in there. I don't know. But then it goes on to become stranger because then the light winks out. They go to bed and then they feel something moving somewhere downstairs outside the house. So then they proceeded to look out the window again. And then this is now getting on much, much later in the evening. And they see what they thought. The only thing they can figure out, I guess, is that there were deer looking in the kitchen window right underneath them. They had ears of a deer, eyes of a deer. And they had the hoofs, except they were standing on two legs. Anna, do you mind me asking, do you know off the top of your head if there's any lore in that area for a creature that's deer-like in nature? I'm just curious as to if there's anything, like any background that can give credence to that. Not that I don't believe, I'm just curious. Tell you the truth, they told me the name of the town. I was a little taken aback. Uh, it's associated with vineyards, huh. lavender. I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. I think I, I think I know. There's a monastery um, close by. Um, you know, it's it's usually land that's used for for lavender and flowers, things of that nature. Um, I don't know very much and neither did they. They contacted or tried to contact the landlord. Uh, I think the husband succeeded in contacting the landlord and he said, I haven't been there. Oh, okay. So it wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't, oh. and, and they left shortly. They packed up and went to an inn in town. Well, we all know the stories of how owners of homes and buildings don't like to warn the people that use their home about, you know, creatures that are roaming right. the community. Bad for business. So, 
now. Okay, so now we go to the next book. Forgive me, Anna, if it's not in the right time frame, but I'm going to go to Haunted Heirlooms. And by the way, everyone, I bought all, all of Anna's books on Amazon, and I suggest that you do too, because I, after reading, I'm I'm like 100 pages away from the end of Night Visitants. There's like 300 and some pages, but let me tell you, I it's such a great book. Um, I can't wait to get to the ending and everything, but I bought Portals, Haunted Heirlooms, The Way Through the Woods, Unholy Structure. That's why I'm letting you know about these books. So Haunted Heirlooms is about four separate antique shops and their respective owners that are encountering strange paranormal phenomena. Being that the antiques in the shop are not only carrying a history with them, they are carrying an attachment. So, Anna, can you go ahead and describe how you got, um, was it you that went to these people or did some these four people get together and come to you um, and, and tell us about, tell us a little bit about the book? Okay, so when I was in college, so that's now moving forward in time. When I was in college, I went to school at a small university in Connecticut. And a few of us were interested in antiques, namely me and another gentleman. And we would just go to flea markets and what they would call swap meets in California um, because we were pretty much students. We didn't have much cash flow. Um, we kind of, you know, had hot dogs and popcorn and <laughs> outside of dorm food. And, but I love these little unique treasures that I would find. So I would frequent some of these antique shops. And well into my 30s, I still went back. Even when I was already out of state, I would go back and I would visit them. Um, one of them was owned by the parents of a friend of mine who went to school with me. Uh, and his story is included, their story is included in the book. Antique dealers, antique shop owners don't usually reveal things of this nature for the plain and simple reason that they don't want, you know, customers to be spooked and run away. But because they had gotten to know me just by, I guess, how frequent I come and take a look and buy and, you know, browse and whatever I could afford. Eventually, they disclosed to me what was happening. And a friend of mine, you know, he was the oldest son in the family. He finally told me what happened one time with a barrister's bookcase, of all things. Um, but they were people who were willing to share with me what had happened. And this was compiled after... I had notes from some of them. Some of them I had to contact to remember their story because I wasn't really trying to make a point of writing a book, per se, about these hauntings. But I figured, okay, I remember writing one or two things down, you know, just to retell people without giving names about these spooky stuff. You know, you go out to dinner or you hang out with friends. It's kind of fun to tell these stories. As long as it's not yours 
the um, conversation. It's always a conversation started like it is in this case. So I contacted two of them and I contacted my friend and I said, hey, you know, I've got this publisher right now and he's interested in nonfiction paranormal. It just dawned on me. You remember what your parents went through when they had that antique store in Rhode Island. Oh, yeah. Oh, believe me, I got involved in that. Yada. And so it just went on from there. And um, shortly after that, I started calling people, getting permission forms, because you, you have to have permission to share these kinds of interesting tidbits or terrifying tidbits, as the case may be. Uh, and before you knew it, I had the workings of a book. I threw in there my own experience with a wing chair, which I actually bought at an outdoor flea market. And it was in beautiful condition. You know, it's always one of those things. You see a bargain, you think, oh, this is too good to be true. There's nothing wrong with it. I sat on it, rocked it back and forth to make sure it was sturdy. And it was. And I said to the guy, and I'm thinking to myself, I'll never be able to afford this. How much do you want for this? And he said, $36. <laughs> Not bad an antique wing chair and I thought okay well uh, I guess we'll walk with this so I gave him the money we put it in the beetle uh, I had a friend who had a beetle convertible at the time and off we went and it ended up in my dorm room which is the last thing that I really needed <laughs> was there any um hesitation there when he told you the price or were you just like what a bargain I'll take it anything having to do with something being attached if you know what right. i mean i was thinking more that i wanted something vintage i wanted something distinctive because all the dorm furniture was your usual you know press wood whatever everybody's room looked the same and i wanted something that had my stamp of individuality in it so off we went and there it was and then you know, I was asked if I had a guest that was staying in the room, you know, is your older sister there or whatever? And I said, no, well, you do know if you have guests, you have to have them sign in. I said, I promise you, I do not have a guest. Well, someone saw a woman, she was wearing, she was all dressed up in high heels and came out of your room and, and I started to get the creeps. Because these people are not the normal people that normally would play a prank on me like that. I mean, I do have friends who do that, who play a prank, but, but not these people. They were like the resident aides, probably making sure that, you know, you didn't have a visitor or you may have to make sure that you sign in everyone. So did you end up seeing the woman yourself, Anna? I ended up seeing what I thought was a woman wearing flappers. She had on a dress that really smacked of 1920s and I could smell some kind of perfume that I had never smelled before. It smelled, it smelled old, I guess is the way to put it. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, the twenties is one of my, is one of the eras I wish that I could go back and be in because the fashion was just a plus. <laughs> 
Now, let me let everyone know Haunted Heirlooms actually is a bestseller. It was a bestseller for what, about six weeks straight, Anna? About six weeks straight. And uh, it, it's very weird how Amazon handles these things. And I, I really can't figure it out. But just about a week ago, I just happened to look up how it was doing because it wasn't. And it was in the top 10 again. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Well, top. hey, people love a good book. And like I said, when I'm reading The Night Visitants, it makes me... The next one I'm going to, after I finish this one on up, the one I'm going to go to next is the one that we're going to speak about next. Anyway, it's called The Way Through the Woods because I am, I don't want to, oh gosh, what's the word that I want to use? I don't want to use the word fascinated, but I, I can't bring another word up right now, but I'm enthralled about Nazi Germany back in the day. Um, and this was actually, uh, a book that was based kind of in that, well, it was based in that time. So this is the book. Um, it's about a German girl who is trying to escape Nazi Germany and the Gestapo to find her father, but has to enter a forest to do so. And the only problem is she finds out the woods are terrifying and haunted. So, Anna, please tell me about this book because this is the next one that I'm going to go. Don't give me everything, of course, but tell me what got you to write it, of course, and um, just a little bit about it for the listeners, too. Sure. This is a very interesting book, how this evolved. Um, I was at a party. I was invited to a dinner party that had probably about, I would say, 150 people, give or take. It was in celebration of someone's birthday. And a lot of the relatives of that particular individual were there. A lot of friends, a lot of neighbors, you name it, they were all there. And it was a sit-down dinner. So it was very grand. There were probably... so. Soup to nuts, I would say, a six-course meal. So everybody had a seating arrangement, and you had to look for your name, and I ended up sitting next to this elderly lady. She was very prim and very dressed and very polite, and as she sat down, she literally tripped and almost fell on my lap. So I always tell people, this book literally fell on my lap. <laughs> and that's a good one. That's actually, you kind of like, think about that, Courtney. Like that really is kind of crazy how that happened. Because like I said, the, the summary, just that little bit that I read, it intrigues me. I was like, you know, I wanted to go portals first and start in mm -hmm. the, the order, but I don't know. This book is calling me for some reason. Right. I don't know why, but Farah, I agree with you. Before, honestly, before Farah, I even connected with you. I want to say that maybe Anna, you followed me on Instagram, and this was the first book that I bought. It's it's cute in my Kindle library, but then I obviously we got the Night Visitants, and I read that first. But this book is also really intriguing to me because Nazi Germany is just like sickeningly fascinating from my perspective. So. The fact that it just kind of came to you like that is really, I guess, just 
I don't even know what word that would be. It's it's just mind boggling that something like this would just come to you. Things happen for a reason, but it was a time that that's a big time in history back then, not only for the war, but, you know, the Jewish community and everything. So I guess it's just it's it's a very big staple of, you know, of the past. So go ahead, Anna or Anna, continue, because I do want to hear this. So what I was going to say was, uh, at the course of the evening, we were talking and she said, I didn't realize that you wrote because I was explaining to her what I was trying to do in the process of getting the second edition of Portal, which is what you have in your hand. And she said, I wonder how your publisher would feel about something that's a memoir. And I said, okay, uh, I'm not that familiar with the currency, but tell me a little bit more about what, what you're thinking. And she told me part of her life. I literally didn't talk to anyone else that evening. And at the conclusion of the evening, I had more questions than answers. I finally reached out to get her phone number. I gave her mine. And in another couple of weeks, we were talking again. And we did this probably for about three months. I would call her or she would call me. I would take a notebook out and I would start writing. And what evolved to be Way of the Woods was actually a supernatural thriller. She to this day cannot believe what she went through. I have to say, sadly, she passed away about three months ago. Um, when this started, she was only about five or six years old, when her family was kind of torn apart. I won't say too much about it, except to say, this is from the standpoint of a German girl. Um, normally you would have a book that was written about a Jewish family or a family like a, a Roma family, for instance, a gypsy family, from, from their perspective of a gypsy family or another family that is shunned by the Nazis. This is one of Germany's children. She was trained without consent from the parents because they were forced to do so, to become a Nazi youth teacher. They indoctrinated children at a very young age, literally brainwashing them by giving them a book they called it Mein Kampf, as you know. And they had to recite all the laws of Hitler. So Krista, who is the woman I interviewed, told me how her parents were not in favor of what happened, uh, what the Nazis were doing. Uh, and in the process, they decided they would do what they needed to do in order to help the others to survive. So that's when, that's the catalyst for what happens to her family next. Uh, some of you probably would guess, you know, that they were torn apart in the process. But what happens to Krista is what is unique. And what happens to her father is also very frightening. Um, during the war, one of the things I will add is how they, the Nazis used everyone as an accessory. To them, other life, 
other people, even animals, were just considered accessories to a cause. Uh, in one of the scenes, we see a burial ground of the dogs, the German shepherds that the Nazis used during the war. When the dogs got sick or they got old or they became ill, they just simply left them, left them, deserted them, abandoned them to die. That's so grim. I didn't know that. That just gutted me. That just gutted me. <clears throat> Ooh, that just gutted me. But I, I get what you're saying, Anna, because I think, um, you know, us over here in the States, well, you, you had, you were able to get more into it, you know, with actually speaking to someone from that area, you know, but I mean, we're all taught in school, just, uh, you know, a grim scene of it. And, and that's, it's neither here nor there, but I mean, of course I've read up and watched as many documentaries as I could. And you're exactly right. The, the Germans, it was, you were just a casualty of war for them to get where they wanted to be. Now, when she, what were just name again, don't give too much, but what's, what's one or two things that she encountered in that forest, Anna? Well, one of the things that she was supposing was that a lot of the family members had survived. She had found out through the Gestapo, a woman who housed her, took her in uh, for the purposes of training other young kids uh, in the doctrine of Hitler. She finally confessed to her that her father was alive. So with that, she made her escape out of the house. Uh, actually, it was with consent because she had blackmailed them. So she left the house and made her way through the forest. Uh, and if you go on Google Earth, the forest still exists. The two towns where she started and where she ended still exist. As she was going through the forest, there were some things in there she wasn't supposed to see. And some of them had to do with tragedies that were being reenacted for her benefit. Let's say that. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I can't wait to read that book. I can't wait to read that book. Now we're on to the next book, which is called Unholy Structure. So it's a, quote, point of view book written from what the paranormal investigators themselves encountered on their journey to investigate a 20-room mansion that is infested with spirits. And with that, it's been under refurbishment for four years at this time, slowly under construction because of the haunting experiences that the crews have encountered. So Anna, tell me how you got into writing this book and what what did you like about writing this with actually following, you know, well, discussing with the team who actually did the investigation. And this was kind of like your first 
point of view in this direction, like the people that investigate the haunting. This was a fun one for me because um, John and I had been talking on Facebook and that's how I met him. And John is the founder of the Harrisburg Area Paranormal Society. And he said, I've got some stories for you that I think would be book worthy. And I said, go ahead. You know, I'm, I'm open to stories. And so we arranged a phone call and he pitched to me a few of his cases. A few of them I did turn down only because they were still active. And it's very hard to put closure on a case that is still active. Although I will tell you, there is one that is still active. I didn't realize it until the very end. The case that he shared with me that was most resistant and became the most time consuming and taxing for his crew was this particular case. It had changed hands about three or four times. And by the time we were writing, I was writing the book, the owner once again sold it to a gentleman who was still intent on making it into an inn. So we couldn't approach to get permission because John no longer had the case. He closed the case. Uh, they had been on the case for quite a number of months going in and out almost every weekend when as time permitted to try to tape to film to get an evp of this highly resistant structure they witnessed a lot they encountered a lot and as you will read in this book there are workers in there even those that are outside the building who were affected when something happened to them personally when they went home. It haunted John that he, he could not tape anything. He could not film anything. It was so elusive. And yet they were seeing so many things and encountering so many things that they had never seen before. And I tried to get inside his head and to picture exactly without the benefit of seeing the interior of the inn. I had to think about, okay, where were you placing the equipment? Who was where and who was what? So in order to make it as close to the skin as possible, so to speak, I had to learn who was in the crew, who he interviewed and how he felt. And that's how that book was written. Now, you said that it had changed hands a few times. So was it the same crew through these four years or did the crew change change as well with the owners changing? The crew changed about four times. The wow. The that tried to get a crew together, they only stayed for a few months. Uh, they, they wouldn't do any overtime. As soon as the sun set, they were out of there. They were booking out of there and then they hired another one the same thing happened then finally the owner gave up sold it to someone else i mean it's a beautiful structure john finally sent me a picture of it and i couldn't believe it and you know uh, do you know if it's actually refurbished now anna or are they still in construction 
turned over um, into a historical society that it was not fit to live in, even as an inn, because of all the types of infestations that were inside. They were concerned it was dangerous. And the cemetery that was adjacent to it, there was a wooded area where there was something else that was going on. They didn't think it was safe. I mean, it just emotionally and spiritually, it was not a safe place. They also told them to start exhuming what was in the ground because there were things in the ground that were not meant to be there. This was the scene of some type of a battlefield as well. And then on top of that, we have something, and I conjectured it in the book. I said to him, do you mind if I go into a backstory of what I think might have happened? Because with every kind of haunting, you always have a catalyst. Something goes awry, something violent has happened, something traumatic has happened, and it leaves an imprint and it attracts these entities. And in this one, I thought that the major causation of this type of haunting was a very evil man. A man who wreaked havoc when he stayed there for the period of time that he did. Um, he, he, uh, he destroyed quite a few lives while he was staying there. And so to this day, I understand it's still empty. It's owned by someone, and I, I have no idea what they plan to do with it. Um, no one of the paranormal members have access to it. I put it in a place where I felt no one would know where it was because we don't have permission. But I know where it is. Now, I want to go on to, because we have about eh, 20 minutes or so left, but I want, Anna, you know what I remembered? I didn't put in when I sent you the email with what, you know, I was kind of following along with bullet points. Remember the C5 contact thing that I talked to you about? Z5. The no. C5. C, oh. as in Charlie. The abduction. Yes. That's, you know, Anna, when Anna and I first got together, it was because I had a post that said, um, if anyone has had like a, a UFO sighting or, uh, you know, dabbled in the C5 contact because I myself wanted to try it. So Anna, tell me about your experience or your knowledge about that. Sorry about that. I've got a dog here. Um, I don't have any experiences with C5. Was that your question? I'm sorry. Yeah, like, do you have it or do you have knowledge through your, um, through any of, you know, you writing your books or anything like that? Do you know of anybody that tried that? No, I do not. I have people that I have encountered that I feel might have had a C5 encounter. One is actually close to my home, just about a few miles away on the border of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Um, I'm shortly writing about that in an article. Uh, there is one where there's two gentlemen, they were trying to cross a bridge and they were coming home and in the process of crossing the bridge, there was a vehicle in front of them that was blocking the way. The one gentleman comes out, 
it's a van, it's a family van. And he notices that all doors of the van on both sides are open. And the van is just moving almost like it was on neutral. Moving ever so slowly, he looks in, it's totally empty. He starts looking over one side of the bridge, the other side of the bridge starts yelling. The guy behind the wheel comes out. It's like, what's going on? The car's blocking the way, no one's inside. So the only thing I could conjecture from that report was that somehow the family was abducted. They're not there. Stand open. Now, um, I did see someone in the chat has a question, so I always want to make sure that my listeners come first before I go on. So this is from this is to you, Anna, for from Spooky Appalachia blog, and he asks, Anna. You mentioned the winged creature at the beginning followed your family. Does it still? Do you think it may have come as a warning about your family incident, which I'm gathering about the roaches, Spooky? That's probably where you're going with that. So there you go, Anna. There's a question from a listener. No, I don't think it was a harbinger of anything. It wasn't really predicting anything. I think it was basically something that was demonic um, that visited on my father during a low period of his life. Um, I think sometimes these things attach themselves to certain people um, when they are feeling alone or maybe perhaps because he's working at a solitary job like I am. <laughs> And I don't think it followed us. I will say, though, that I do have, a, without going into long lengths, I did have an interaction with something that was in my mother's condominium. And this is back before the pandemic. So this is bringing us to the closer in time, I would say probably about 10 years ago, uh, of, of, of something that's told me to get out. I didn't see anything. It was just a very malignant feeling. And the room that I was in plummeted by 30 degrees. That's Again, that brings the question of, is it demonic, whatever it is that you may have encountered in this um, particular incident at your mother's condo? And my other question is, because a lot of times when people have a clairaudient experience like that, it's inside of their head. Did you hear it externally from you or was that like inside your mind's eye for lack of better word? You know, I don't know if it was telepathic or whether I heard it. I do know it came clear in one ear on my right ear. Uh, and I remember turning to see what was on the wall. It was just basically the temperature gauge. So it must have been external. That makes sense. The other thing no. too is, I want to say again i i research a lot of different like clairvoyant abilities and i i believe that right ear means something good but also i'm not entirely sure that that was the case in this sense because usually they say colder is not a good sign but that's interesting thank you for answering that and I have to agree with Courtney that, you know, it's definitely, I I do think it's a, it was like a demonic 
infestation, definitely, even though it was winged. I mean, we know that in a lot of different, um, what do I want to say, like drawings or illustrations that I've seen of several demonic or demons that some of them have wings. I mean, that's what a demon is. It's a fallen angel. So there's the wing part right there. I mean, that's my opinion, of course. But now, um, Anna, some questions, Courtney, uh, I'm going to let you go first. Any other questions that you want to ask Anna before I go into my questions um, that I want to get? I honestly, you have a lot of the questions that I want to ask her. Um, mainly just, I guess, actually, here's one. What would you recommend aside from the night visitants, but as a first book to kind of introduce you as a writer, what would you recommend us read next? say that if you're picking up one of my books for the first time, I think a good intro would be Unholy Structure. Um, it represents what I consider creative nonfiction. Uh, and that's different from a typical nonfiction book. And usually a nonfiction book will just talk about facts straightforward. Uh, creative nonfiction is different in that there is a plot that's involved. You're creating characters that are based on real people, in this case, John and his crew and his wife. Um, and you're also looking at developing it so that there is a story that people follow. And the one that I think best exemplifies that is Unholy Structure. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that one's well, I'm still intriguing going to me. I, I'm kind of interested now in they all sound really amazing, but I'm really big into antique shopping and I always am hesitant to buy things because I'm worried about attachments that may not have my best interest in mind. So that one piqued my interest, but I don't know. Now that you're talking about um, unholy structure, you may have swayed my opinion. <laughs> I have a question here on a how how has your understanding of yourself and your life changed as a result of writing about your memoirs, the paranormal, the strange? Well, I, I think I've come full circle because when my life began, it was my father that was striving to become a writer. Uh, he was basically a poet. That was his chosen medium. Uh, and in striving to do so, I think something invaded him um, externally that caused so much havoc to his creative life that it became abruptly cut off. So I'm picking up where he left off and I am now writing what material I have based on the type of experiences I had as a child. So we've come full circle in that sense. I sense him as a mentor now more than ever to my writing. Um, and I know that's a very strange thing to say. I think he is definitely in a better place. I think that spiritually he survived that onslaught. Uh, and now he is someone that I go to as you know, as someone who is a protector more than anything. So I'm able to write what he wasn't able to write. I'm able to complete what was cut off prematurely for him. 
So that is what I learned on this voyage. Now, Anna, do you have any of your father's writings? Like, did he leave anything behind? Did he actually maybe not have been published, but was he able to finish a book or did he, was he just one, like you said, did he, did he just write like poetry? Do you have anything of his? He does have quite a number of poems. My mother, after his death, picked out about 50% or probably even less, I think, of the poetry that he had and published it. So that that is actually in certain libraries in Connecticut. It's not open to purchase because it's very limited in stock. Um, but there are some very dark poems that allude to the creature that he encountered and those she chose not to publish. I was going to ask about that. May I have the name of that book, Anna? Oh, sure. It's called Ernesto, like Ernest with an O, mm -hmm. D as in dog, middle initial, Manalo, M-A-N-A-L-O, Selected Poems. Yeah, because I definitely want to, see if I can get a hold of something like that because I would love to see what your father left behind which goes into my next question what do you hope that I guess how do you think your memoirs will be remembered in the future what do you hope for your memoirs for anyone that reads them what what you leave behind I think I just want people to understand the nature of things that are terrifying and why they are terrifying. Uh, we live in a dualistic world and in our three-dimensional world, there exist things that we do not see that are capable of either healing us, moving our lives forward into something of grace, but there's also the other side that when we are privy to violence or some kind of tragedy or misfortune, these entities feed on these experiences and their goal is to destroy us. Their goal is to make us unhappy. Um, they are creatures that exist because they are fallen from grace and that we shouldn't tap into anything we don't understand unless we know how to protect ourselves because they are very, very difficult to remove. You have that right. And I want you to go ahead and tell all of our listeners because anyone that did not get to make it to the live, I will be publishing this episode this coming week. So Anna, I want you to go ahead and tell everybody about the night visitants, where to find it, all of that good stuff. Cause we want to make sure we know how we can get this night visitants up to a best seller. Oh, thank you. Uh, the night visitants is about a ufologist and an experiencer that he had met. Uh, it is a dual genre book as I would call it because it's both horror, but it's also paranormal in the area of ufology and i'll leave it to the reader to interpret which is which it can be found on amazon it came live today in paperback 
And then shortly on the 18th, which I believe is this coming Tuesday, the Kindle version is going to be available. Um, I also can be found on Goodreads. Um, I am giving away 100 free copies of the ebook. Tom and I, my co-author, are both on there. It's from the 16th of April to the 16th of May. Uh, if they put it in their cart as one to read, that would be fabulous. I can also be found um, on Facebook, at, on Instagram, where you guys found me. And I'm also on TikTok. And I have a website which has a blog. And that is under my name, AnnaMariaManaloAuthor.com. Wonderful. And listeners, everyone out there, I am so happy that you were able to join us this evening because, Anna, seriously, I'm. this is like a moment in my life. Okay, I'm going to start crying. Oh, please don't cry. No, seriously, this is a moment in my life where I am just to talk to someone like you that have had these experiences, the trauma that you've gone through, you're, you're such, um, you're, you're, I, I envy your strength. You're an idol to me because I'm trying to get into writing myself. Um, and it's just a blessing that I've met you and I want to do more things with you. I want you to be a co-host on my, uh, podcast as much as you're available to be. I, I want you to be there for anything that I have questions on. You are just someone I am so happy, so happy that I've met in my life. We're so happy to have met you. And, and yes, uh, you know, if you would like to be me to be available, I would be very grateful to you. And I'm just a regular person trying to write about what I've encountered and what other people have encountered. I try to make it as entertaining as I can so that people will read it. Uh, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about my books. Oh my gosh. And I'm going to be for the next months, I'm going to just keep plugging away at that night visitants because I am going to be the one that gets your book up there to number one. Seriously. And it deserves it. I've been reading it Does like, at night which is probably not a good time to be reading it but <laughs> i i just can't put it down it's it, it really is a fantastic book and i appreciate you sharing it with us um and giving us that sneak peek yes thank you and um again we hope to have anna on again for some more talking about just paranormal experiences in general but cabin crew this has been a fantastic fantastic discussion and um night to everyone and i will have this published out on uh sometime this week i'll make it a bonus episode so that way we can still have your tuesday story your saturday story and until next time cabin crew explore your strange
Hey, hey there, cabin crew. I just wanted to come on to end this live episode in a normal way, <laughs> um, more or less just to let you know about, hey, remember Tuesdays and Saturdays episodes drop. We got some bonus ones coming in there. If you haven't listened to my episode with Kevin from where the weird ones are, then make sure that you go look that up and give it a listen. Um, also, go and take a listen to the Peter Curtin story. Uh, this serial killer was one of the most notorious that I've ever at least come across with his haunted ways of how he mutilated, um, drank the blood, cannibalized some of his victims. And even down to the end, when he was being guillotined, that he even wanted to hear his own blood gush from his neck. And that would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. Just a phenomenal uh, ending to his life. But um, also, I, I want to say, please go out and grab Anna's books, Anna's books. I keep on going back and forth. But she says, as long as you don't call her mud, you can call her what you want. Um, but yes, go get Anna's books, Portal, Haunted Heirlooms, Unholy Structure, and the one that I'm starting next, The Way Through the Woods. Um, and her most her newest book coming out, which has dropped already on Amazon, The Night Visitants. Let's help her get a best seller on this one, Cabin Crew. But you, you know, if you didn't, um, you know, if you missed us on the live, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. She is a wonderful writer. Um, she actually gave me a sneak peek at the book, The Night Visitants, and I was 100 pages away from ending it when we did the live. So, um, you know, what a fascinating storyteller she is. I, I hope to get as good as her in, in all the hard work that I'm doing these days with bringing you listeners some great episodes. Um, please, again, like, comment, drop a rating, a review. It helps get this show out there in the algorithm. So um, this is my dream, Kevin Crew. Help me get there. I, I don't care about making money off this thing. I just care that I'm having listeners that enjoy listening to a good story. I'm trying to put extra work in there, making it seem like an, a good audio book with the sound effects, different music, not just, you know, one song or no songs. I'm trying to make you feel like you're there at the scene. So, um, yeah. And um, I'm going to spill the beans now. But in May, mid-May, look out and plan for a live episode with... Well, actually, I'm not going to do it live because I don't want anything to happen. Even though nothing happened with my live with Anna, it went smooth... But uh, an episode will be coming out in May with Nick Valente, founder of the International Dog Man Project. Oh, my God. <laughs> so be on the lookout for that one, Cabin Crew. I'm actually recording this coming week with a Stute Paranormal group. So you're actually going to hear a point of view episode um, from an investigator standpoint. And listen to where they've gone. So keep an eye out for that as well. Other than that, until next time, Cabin Crew, I love you all. 
explore your strange.